This is the word of God, amen? amen. Well, I hope you said amen. hope you believe that. This passage, as you just heard read, is obviously, I hope you see, a testimony to discipleship. Notice 23, Paul strengthened the disciples. Or notice that someone named Apollo, Apollos uh, needs to be taken aside by more mature Christians and have his understanding of what is the gospel lined out a little bit clearly, right? It's a testimony to discipleship. So uh, we should ask the question, what is discipleship? Let me give you a simply stated definition of discipleship. Simply stated, discipleship is the process by which God grows your saving faith into a mature saving faith through the means of grace in the local church. If you're looking for a biblical definition of discipleship, I just gave it to you. Let me say it again. Biblical discipleship is a process by which God grows your saving faith into mature saving faith through the means of grace in the local church. Discipleship is the process in our lives of gaining ground together in the church on the fixed and certain realities of God's saving and keeping, preserving grace in our lives. God's means of grace that he uses. Uh, they, uh, God's desire to use the means of grace in your life. When that happens, you're being discipled. You're being trained up. There's a, fam- a famous Christian from church history. I want to intro the sermon with this morning. It was a man named George Mueller. Some of you have heard his name before. Some of you haven't. So George Mueller was a Christian evangelist and became a director of the Ashley Down Orphanage, took care of orphans, in Bristol, England. He did this in the late 1800s. Okay, here we are, 2022, late 1800s. He was born early 1800s. He was doing ministry at the end of the 1800s. His work with orphans is maybe the most notable work with with orphaned children in all of church history. I mean, it's that impactful of a man concerning his ministry to orphans. Mueller himself had a moment of discipleship in his life, a lot like Apollos, who we just read about, does in our text. Uh, John Piper researched Mueller's life, presented on him to a talk he gave in a conference in 2004. I want to sum it for you this morning. Mueller came to England in the hope of being a missionary with the London Missionary Society. When he did that, he was coming from Germany, Mueller became sick. He became sick, very sick, okay, in the 1800s, uh, to the point of almost dying. And it was in the summer of 1829. Because he got so sick, he went to a town which had clearer air, uh, a mountain town, Tigmoth, uh, there outside in in, in England. Uh, He went there to heal. And he was there for about, uh, about 14 days, 10 to 14 days. And there was a little chapel there and uh, called Ebenezer, and he, he met a, an unknown person that helped George Mueller 
in a tremendous way. So in this sick period where he was healing and recovering, uh, he learned two things. In that time, he, re- he, he found in his life the preciousness of, of reading and meditating on the word of God. That's one thing he found. So the preciousness of reading and meditating on God's word. And then secondly, during that time, uh, through this nameless man, he found the doctrines of grace. Let me quote Mueller about this. Mueller said, quote, through the instrumentality of this brother, that's this unknown man, the Lord bestowed a great blessing upon me for which I shall have cause to thank him throughout eternity. Mueller continues, before this period, I had been much opposed to the doctrines of election, particular redemption, and final persevering grace. So much so that a few days after my arrival at Teengmouth, I called election a devilish doctrine. I knew nothing about the choice of God's people and did not believe that the child of God, when once made a child of God, was safe and safe forever. But now I was brought to examine these precious, precious truths by the word of God, end quote. Now, there's about 40 years later in George Mueller's life, so I want you to think for just a second of how long that is. After he's sick in 1829, around 1870, 40 years later, Mueller spoke to some young believers that were coming around him at that time to learn, and he spoke to them about the importance of what had happened to him when he was sick those 14 days in, in, in Tigmoth. He said that his preaching had been fruitless for four years prior to that 14 days. He had been preaching, he had been doing ministry uh, from 1825 to 1829 in Germany, okay? And he said to these students, for four years, it was a fruitless preaching. But then he came to England and was taught the doctrines of grace, and quote, in the course of time, I came to this country and it pleased God then, he's telling in 1870, 40 years later, reflecting on, on discipleship, continuing the quote, it pleased God then to show me the doctrines of grace in a way in which I had not seen them before. At first, I hated them. If this were true, he said, I could do nothing at all in the conversion of sinners, as all of it would depend upon God and the working of his spirit. But... When it pleased God to reveal these truths to me and my heart was brought to such a state that I could say I am not only content simply to be a hammer, an axe, or a saw in God's hand, but I shall count it an honor to be taken up and used by him in any way at all. That if sinners are to be converted through my instrumentality, my inmost soul, I would give. I would give all the glory of the Lord if he would only give me to see fruit. He tells them, the Lord gave me to see fruit in abundance. Sinners were converted by scores, and ever since then, God has used me in one way or another in his service, end quote. 10 to 14 days of being intentionally taught from the Bible what God has said equals 40 years of faithful work and ministry. Is that the impact that a true moment of discipleship can have in the life of a person? The answer is yes. 
The answer is yes. Now, this sermon this morning is not about you finding what we just called the doctrines of grace. That may hit you today, fly over your head, in one ear, out the other, and I'm okay with that. I really am. I think you should investigate them. I think you should see what the Bible says about how God saves, how he converts, how he grows, how he continues, and how he'll keep someone forever. I think you need to know those things. But I'm not interested in trying to go with you back to the late 1800s to that sick camp and spend time with George Mueller for that benefit. What I do want us to be seeing in connection here as we look at the text this morning is that a man in church history and a man in this text, which is church history, but it is explicitly in your Bible, which God has preserved for you to understand, has a moment. These two men, Apollos and I'm telling you about George Mueller, have moments where God in the scriptures is seen clearly with the help of another, so much so that it imprints on their life and causes an indelible change. I mean, an absolute, a certain change that changes 40 years, four decades worth of how a man would carry himself and preach and pray and believe. Do you want such faith? (laughs) I hope you do. We study this morning the precious moments of one of the greatest saints in the New Testament. I mean, if you put together an accurate list of giants in the New Testament, uh, the, the witness would look like the 12 apostles, right? But really, when you start talking about the content of what it seems like they did in and among the church, it kind of goes like this. Peter, Paul, James, the great, Apollos. Now, Apollos, be clear here, is not an apostle. He's not an apostle. He's, he's not. Apostles saw the resurrected Jesus. They received firsthand from Jesus the instruction themselves. Paul was the last, the least, he said, but the last certainly of the apostles in that sense. Okay? The apostles wrote and or uh, you know, you know, wrote scripture, often many of them. Uh, they also are, are the ones who, who, who clearly have uh, the first kind of deliverance from Jesus, Jesus handpicking them and then the church affirming them. Apollos is not that. But man, when it comes to the idea that the apostles are the ones who hand down to us for once and for all the the faith of the saints, who's going to grab from them? Guys like Apollos. People like Priscilla and Aquila in our text. To be clear, uh, he wasn't an apostle, but he is numbered with them if you go read 1 Corinthians 1. You can write notes. If you're writing notes, you should look up 1 Corinthians 1. Uh, in this passage. Now, discipleship consists, again, of three things, saving faith, means of grace, local church. That's going to be our outline this morning. Saving faith, means of grace, local church. First, we're going to see God's saving faith in Apollos. It's there. And second, this morning, we'll see God's means of grace for Apollos. So it's not only the saving faith in Apollos. Secondly, we're going to see God's means of grace for Apollos. And then thirdly, in closing, we'll see God's local church blessed through Apollos. You see it? You see what I'm saying about discipleship? Discipleship consists of saving faith that comes to you. We're going to see it in Apollos. Discipleship takes the means of grace and applies them to you. The means of grace for Apollos. We're going to see that in the text. And I think finally, when you are doing discipleship, then the local church is blessed through your efforts. And that's what happens through Apollos. The local church is indeed blessed. That's where we're headed. Let's talk about the first point together, okay? God's saving faith in Apollos. 
Our first verse that Kelly read, uh, it sets the context for you and I in verse 23. We could honestly preach the same sermon I'm preaching this morning from this one verse. I mean, do you see it? I want you to see it again, the context of this passage of Scripture. You see, God in 23 through 28, he is not giving a new faith to a single unconverted Gentile. You realize that? There's no lost people getting saved in this passage. This passage is about those who are in Christ being strengthened and discipled in their commitment to follow Jesus. And then uh, one particular one who will take the rest of the time really getting, you know, uh, some uh, doctrinal soundness about him that he lacked. But the entire focus on this passage is discipleship. Paul, who's our main character in the book of Acts, is out again from Antioch in verse 23. He's starting what we call the third missionary journey that he's going on out of that church, being sent out. And as we move with him on the map with our eyes, he goes on the same route that he's been prior He's trying to get back to Ephesus, people who he's told, I'll be to you, I'll come to you, but not right now. He left Ephesus and took a boat very conveniently and quickly, right? All the way to the church in Rome and eventually then, excuse me, the church in Jerusalem and then eventually Antioch. But instead of getting back on that boat, simple, you know, backtrack to where he wants to be, he chooses to go out of the way and go through the same places he's been. Why? Your text tells you, 23, to strengthen all the disciples. Do you see that? So Paul is committed to the thing that we're going to see clearly here. God's saving faith has been at work in those areas, and there we go. But as we follow Paul quickly, we do get our eyes, Luke wants us to see, on another character, Apollos. Let's just list the characteristics that are given in verses 24 through 25 to kind of help us understand that Apollos really does have saving faith. Okay, can we do that together? All right, look, look with me. It said he's a Jew. Now, the context here is positive. We've been seeing the Jews, you know, bomb, 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 right? It's always negative uh, so far. The Jews get stirred up and angry, and what do they do, man? They, they come after Paul, right? They stir up people to try to get the dude killed, right? They stone people when they're angry about not being able to stone Paul. They stone their own people, okay? Lots of negative. And yet here's the word again, the Jew, right? A Jew. Uh, not negative, however. It's positive, um, he's a Jew, uh, and, and in this sense, Apollos is to be viewed like this. He's got some knowledge about who Yahweh is, okay? The Jews are not altogether bad. You shall not throw all out entirely uh, when you see the Jews, now that the gospel's going to the Gentiles, the fact that God gave his word, saving, redemptive plan to them first, and then to the Greek, to the, to the Gentile. So in that sense... Uh, Apollos has been growing up in the idea. I don't say it like this. God's sovereign choice and doing in Apollos' life through circumstance is clearly understood. All right? You are a product of what you were raised in in some ways, good and bad. And we see that God took what was the good of Apollos being raised in Judaism and it's clearly it's clearly to be named, right? Why? Because God's going to transform it into something beautiful. He's from northern Egypt. Do you see that? He's from Alexandria. That's a mega city in North Africa, even in this time. It's always had a lot of Jews in it. You can imagine Jews, you know, getting like enslaved in Egypt, right? Under Pharaoh uh, thousands of years before this. I mean, there's a, a remnant that has always been uh, in northern Alexandria. 
Um, and and it's, it just it stays that way. Church history is riddled with examples of Christians who take up the mantle of the Jews who missed it in Alexandria and, and do it. Some of our favorite uh, theologians come from that area. One particular is Augustine. So you got to understand, this is, uh, you know, a Jewish population. He's an eloquent man. Do you see that? Another character trait we see in the first few verses. Apollos is eloquent. That means he's a learned man. He's not an idiot. <laughs> All right? Dude reads books. Uh, the guy, and he doesn't just read them to look smart. He's not pseudo. He's not fake smart. He actually is a very learned person. You've been around these people, right? Uh, you yourself may be smart, and, and I bet you are, and you're learned too, okay? Um, you're all sitting here able to understand me in English, so you've, you're at least that learned. But some of you have met, and you can remember meeting people that just have a, ten- a tenacious ability, right? They just, you're around them and you just think, this guy's brilliant, or, or this girl's so smart. You know what I'm talking about? That's the idea here. Apollos was just an eloquent person, uh, and so he was very learned. The Bible tells us he was competent in the scriptures. This is one of my favorite, and I enjoyed being in the Greek this week. Uh, Though I don't have the, 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 the degrees behind my name, I have a few tools to help me. And brother, sister, let me encourage you. you. You can find these tools too. But when it uses that word for competent, it's dynatos. I'm probably getting that wrong, but think dynamite because it's the same root word, okay? This dude being competent in the scriptures, he's explosive in the scriptures, all right? He's powerful and strong, I mean, we get the word dynamite, right? And then graphe, scriptures, refers to the Old Testament here. Now, I love this about Apollos. If you want to see some indicators about what saving faith does look like, there is in it this dynamite, this explosive kind of power that accompanies somebody who understands the Bible. And this guy was competent in the Old Testament. He knew it. He knew it well, which is awesome. All this we... You know, just covered, more than likely, a list before he's regenerate. So in other words, before Apollos is saved, so much of this is, is, is what is implied here, okay? He's this uh, kind of stud of a Jew, if you will. He's getting it right. Now, uh, read verse 25 again with me, because I think it's important to make the case that Apollos had saving faith at this moment in our story in Acts. Uh, but this is still past tense about him. Uh, it says in verse 25, he had, he had been instructed in the way of the Lord and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. He has heard the gospel prior uh, the way that a faithful Old Testament saint would have heard and understood and has faith in a Messiah to come, all right? When he's competent in the things of the Lord. However, this is saying, not only was he a Jew made ready by the Old Testament, right? Like he's ready for Jesus. This, the text is clear. He's heard about Jesus and is teaching accurately from the scriptures the things concerning Jesus. So we need to realize that the gospel in Acts, it is following a very linear, very clear trajectory of the gospel from Jerusalem to Rome. Remember that from our introduction work in this book? It's going to go from Jerusalem, Judea, Sumeria, the, uh, the ends of the earth, right? We're following that trajectory in the book. But we need not forget that when the gospel 
exploded out of Jerusalem. It exploded to the ends of the earth already. It was already happening. And in many ways, what has probably happened is the gospel has come to Alexandria. Apollos has heard it in the course of these last decades that the gospel's been doing work, has come to realize everything I've heard about this Jesus, which was mainly, seems to be linked to the teachings of John the Baptist, is accurate. And so in that sense, he's not just saying, hey, there's a Messiah to come. He's been saying, there, is, there has been a Messiah to come, and I tell you, he's Jesus. He's Jesus. So clearly, there is a lot of clarity about Apollos in his salvation. There's some difficulty with him, which we'll get to. But what we have to say here, I think, is this. The Alexandrian gospel that was being preached at that time enough to, for an Apollos, a faithful Jew, to hear it, understand Jesus, and then began himself to now instruct with his gift that Jesus is the Messiah, which is what this is saying. If that's true, then all the ways that the gospel in Alexandria was missing the mark, as our text points out, it's, it's maybe focusing not on what symbolic baptism actually is in Christ or what the Spirit maybe and the involvement of the Holy Spirit is in, in, in the, the person who is saved and what it means for them to follow. Though it's maybe got some issues about it, it is the gospel. And it's precious and it's true. And I think there's a world of application about the fact that in Alexandria, men like Apollos came to know Jesus and they didn't quite have it figured out yet what it means to be baptized and what the Holy Spirit's work is in the life of a believer. That's interesting. But I think it's necessary to see. Don't let this confuse you. We know the essentials are there. Luke would not have said, taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, right? He would not have said that statement unless he knows that you've been paying attention for 18 chapters where men have stood up and made it very clear what is and is not Jesus, his life, his death, his burial, and his resurrection, right? You see, a, beloved, the, 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 the saving grace present in Apollos' life is there. It's certain. I mean, if we were discipling him, we would say, the brother's faithful. He's available the brother is teachable. <laughs> These things have rooted in him, and uh, he's teaching them accurately. Quick study note. He's deficient, I just alluded to, in understanding baptism, but, but notice he's not baptized in our text. Do you notice that? By the time we leave him and move on to what's going to happen in Ephesus, uh, we, we actually don't see him being baptized. So there's some evidence for you that he's not being converted in this passage. Luke always tells us, right? Philippian jailer repents, believes the gospel, and, is, and he's baptized. Lydia, uh, you know, her heart's open and she's baptized, right? And they're added, but not here. It's not here. My point is, Apollos has saving faith. Not only does he have it, but, it, but beloved, it's explosive and it's undeniable in his life. Before we move on, ask yourself, do you have saving faith? Do you have it? Kids, ask yourself, do I have saving faith? Oldest saint in this room, do you have saving faith? All between, do you have saving faith? You can be assured and reassured and reassured and reassured again if you have it. This morning, I'll be very, very transparent with you if you'll let me. I was struggling in my assurance. Just this morning, I was struggling with my assurance of salvation. I'm standing here preaching to you that Apollos was born again. And I'm telling you, I struggled. Last night, I was struggling in my assurance. 
And when you're married and, and, a, and a preacher, you face things like this intensely. But I want you to know it's no different for me than it is for you today. I'm willing to be transparent. My wife can testify to what I'm saying with bitter pains so often. But listen to me, though. I read something this morning that I want to share with you, assurance of your salvation. It doesn't begin with you. It begins with God. That's what Apollos has. That's what you can have. The assurance of your salvation, it cannot end in you. It cannot end in some doctrine that you put yourself into. It cannot end in some system. It cannot end in some promise. It cannot end in some, some, some you know, thing that you would control. It's got to root itself in one promise, one certainty, one surety, God himself. This morning I was reading this and J.I. Packer said to me this morning, now he's dead, mind you. J.I. Packer, the theologian, he died. Uh, but his fruitful pen still speaks. And the brother that wrote this, quote, love among men, among us, is awakened by something in the beloved. In other words, if me and you are going to understand how to love something together, it gets awakened in me and you. The love we have, it gets awakened by, by what is beloved. We have a goal, we have a thought, we have something that we need, and the thought of having it incites love for, in us, right? We want and so we, we get, right? J.I. Packer says that about us, okay? Love among men is awakened by something in the beloved. But, but, let me contrast now. He says the love of God is free, spontaneous, unevoked, uncaused. God loves men because he has chosen to love them. End quote. I'm here to tell you that Discipleship is essential. I, I, I'm, I'm going to go on to say that. But we disciple those who have understood saving grace. You have to have saving grace and the assurance of your salvation before you can move on. And that's what Apollos has. That's what Apollos has here. He has responded to the free, spontaneous, unevoked, uncaused love of God proclaimed over him in Jesus Christ. Today is a formal invitation to everybody here. I am inviting you, beloved. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Do it first. Do it urgently. Or do it again. But do it. You won't see discipleship in your life. And you won't see discipleship in other people's lives until you come to rest in the understanding that it's only by saving grace. Saving grace in God. Now, God had saving grace in Apollos. Secondly, he had a means of grace in discipleship for Apollos. That's our second point. God's means of grace for Apollos. This story doesn't end there. It begins, right? It doesn't begin in the, in the receiving of, 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 of a born-again heart. It began there. And God has for Apollos a kind of gift for him through uh, God's means of grace. And you know what that gift was to Apollos? A married couple. A married couple in the church... In Ephesus, verse 26 again, look what it says. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue. Now we're in Ephesus, remind you, okay, we're in the city of Ephesus. So we're not in Alexandria, okay? Apollos has traveled to Ephesus. But when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, that's our married couple. Priscilla's the girl, Aquila's the man. When they heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. You remember our friend George Mueller from our introduction? I'm going to keep referencing him. I'm trying to be a good preacher. I'm trying to hold it all together with you consistently. We'll even end with him. But I'm trying to show, George Mueller, you remember what happened? God worked 
sovereignly and providentially in a very tangible way, almost causing him to die via sickness. Don't overlook that, right, from the introduction. I mean, the brother was so sick, he had to leave a city, like a big city, like near London. He had to leave Bristol uh, and, and then go to a place where fresh air could be gathered in hopes that he wouldn't die. And what happened? God providentially using a nasty thing like sickness to do what? To, to, to line George Mueller out, give him a great gift of his grace. That's what happens in this text. God has providentially worked it out that at the same time Paul has left Corinth, the sweet, the sweet married couple that was with him in Corinth, they decide to travel with Paul to Ephesus to see him off, to get on his ship. And there they are in Ephesus as Christians now, and they're, and they're workers, they're tent makers like Paul. And they, they stay over. Paul is begged to stay. He's like, I can't. I'm bound to go elsewhere. I'll be back, I promise. He had left them. And then what did they, why'd they stay? Probably because they thought, well, heck, we'll stay. We'll, we'll help you guys out, right? They just have this heart that wants to help people. And how good is God that when Apollos, who needs correction, needs a married couple in his life to really help him see things clearer, God has orchestrated that they be there. Do you see George Mueller gets sick, goes to this place, and who happens to be there? Some unnamed soul that helps him recover the deepest minds of hope he could have to get him through 40 years of ministry. What does Apollos need to get through years of ministry ahead? It's this. God's means of grace are varied, but hear me, they are intentional. They are not accidental. They often happen when we don't plan. It should make sense that when we do plan, uh, though, that they would be wonderfully helper, helpful. Now, I'm using the word means of grace, and honestly, I'm using a lot of liberty to trust that you know what I mean by that. But I want to explain, if you will, just let me for a second. The normal means of grace that you experience, uh, like Apollos is experiencing from this married couple, they should start, if you're a Christian, with your love for God's word. We have not sang the hymns today in vain. If you're hearing them in vain, shame on you. You should sing them in faith, because if you have faith to sing, speak, O Lord, you should be speaking that in your own quiet, quiet spaces. You should make space, plan to meet God and say, speak, O Lord, as I come to you to receive the food of your holy word. Take your word, plant it deep in me. Shape, fashion me by your likeness, into your likeness. What's happening when you, do, when you study your Bible like that? A means of God's grace is reaching you. You're being discipled by God directly. It's incredible. But right, that, that's a means. That's what I mean by that. So study the word. Prayer, attending church, spending time in fellowship with the saints. Uh, I think a means of grace could be going to bed early sometimes. Uh, sometimes it can be staying up late. <laughs> sometimes it can mean meeting a stranger. You can't plan for all of these, but some of them you can. And so I want to point out, God will always take care of his children. God also expects children that learn obedience. So practice it. They all planned to attend synagogue there in Ephesus, didn't they? How do they meet Apollos? They all plan to go and do what Christians do, which is gather together. Now, granted, this is Ephesus where no work has gotten started of a Christian church in a, in a real solid way. And so they go to the synagogue. That's what they did. But, but, they, but they notice something's off. So um, like the unnamed man uh, that is sick with Mueller. Mueller tells on himself about what was off, right? Mueller, when he was sick in that, in that introduction story, was like, hey, I was messed up theologically. <laughs> I was thinking some dumb things about how God saves or whatever, and this guy helped me. Now, we don't know what Apollos says, 
because because the the text is so much kinder than that. But we do know something. Like the unnamed man that was that helped Mueller at that sick inn that they stayed at, Priscilla and Aquila are ready to help uh, Apollos. But notice how they do it. They could have stood up in front of everyone and said, you speak truth about Jesus, but you're wrong in this. They could have done that, but they didn't, did they? No, they took him privately into their own home. Oh, how I wish I could be a fly on the wall in this, in this place. Likely they're renting it. Uh, it's, you know, it's a temporary place for them, but they have a place where they can practice hospitality. And so in all likelihood, the text indicates they didn't do it in the service. Uh, they did it right after, but we can assume that they did it at length. And so I just envision them, you know, just, just, just having their hospitality ready to just bring this brother in and say, we're so excited to see your gift and your fervency, and we just want to bless you. And then, he, I mean, that's easy to receive a correction, right? They love this man. They bring him in close to them. You know, when electricity leaves uh, the heavens, the, the clouds, and it wants to get to the ground as lightning, it's always taking the easiest route. That's how electricity works. It wants to, that's why we, we, we cancel soccer all the time uh, you know, out on the, the soccer fields in Nacogdoches because if it ever has lightning within 40 miles that we're canceling it. Well, the reason why is because the tallest thing on a flat plane is going to be hit with electricity coming from the heavens. And I think gospel hospitality seen in Priscilla and Aquila here, it was like a lightning rod that they walked into that synagogue that day ready to raise. They were ready. And they were ready to invite people to come and to stand under that lightning rod and receive from heaven through them as a conduit something that could be received. And, and, and heaven struck. And it struck, I want you to see, a, a deep blow. I mean, don't you read the text here? They heard him. And they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. He was wrong. <laughs> he, he was not accurate. He was, he was giving confusion at points in his gospel presentation in the synagogue. And the clarity he needs from heaven comes through the conduit of this kind couple. I hope you see that. They could have blasted him. They could have hurled a thunderbolt at him. and would have been right to say, you're wrong about this in front of everyone. But what good would it have done? It would have crushed Apollos. Last of many things we could note, Luke presents this as a part of Paul's story. Do you notice this about the text? I hope you do. But notice something. Where is Paul? He's not here. The Apostle Paul, who we're trying to follow closely at this point in the book of Acts, and we will continue to to the very end. The Apostle Paul is not in this text, and yes, he, yet he is there. Here's what I mean. He's not there, but his teaching concerning the way of God, more accurately, it is there. God had worked through Paul to show up in Corinth to strengthen the faith of this married couple who are now turning around and doing the same thing as they call someone to more accurately teach the word of God so that he can go across the river and, and, and to the city of Corinth and do what? To help people more accurately understand the way of God. Do you see the pattern here? God's means of grace for Apollos are coming to him through this couple, and it's as if Paul himself is there. Paul will write words to the Corinthian church. 
as he rebukes them for picking their favorite Christian teachers and failing to give credit to God alone. He's going to write to the church. And listen to what Paul will write to the church in Corinth. One says, I follow Paul. And another, I follow Apollos. Are you not being merely humans when you speak this way? What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. Paul says, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. You're God's field. You're God's building. Do you see what I'm saying about the means of grace, beloved? Yeah, we have a case study in Apollos. But what is Apollos' life loudest about? What does Paul say it's loudest about? It's about the service he offered to God, silently, quietly. How did he learn to work in Corinth in such a way that when they decide to raise him up on a pedestal, they are wrong and need to be rebuked from heaven with the scriptures, right? They need to be rebuked by God about what they're doing with Apollos. Where did they learn not to pedestal such a man? You know it came directly from God. But how did it come to Apollos from Priscilla and Aquila? I mean, what we have is the explosion in Scripture here of the means of grace belonging to God, God giving them to the church, the church remembering that all of it is done in thanks to God. If that's not the sum of your discipleship, it ain't discipleship. If, it's not, if that's what is being built up in your church is look what God's doing among us. Look what God's doing through us and look how great it is. If that's not what discipleship ends in for you, you may need to re-examine what you're calling the means of grace. So I hope you're hearing it. We see God's saving faith in Apollos. Now we've seen God's means of grace for Apollos in this text. Let's close it by seeing this. Our final point, God's local church is blessed through Apollos. Saving faith, means of grace, local church. Verse 27 and 28 again in closing. When he wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed. For he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. Man, the preached word helped those in the Corinthian area. When you see there, he crossed to Achaia. He actually crossed a, 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 a river and, and, and a, I'm sorry, a small sea, a small tiny sea that separates these places of Ephesus and Corinth. Uh, this is the area of Corinth. This is also uh, near Athens and Delphi, which are very important Greek, Greek, Greek places. Okay, but in that place, there are those who through grace had believed. Don't you remember the first point, guys? There's no believing outside of believing through grace. Hope you got that. Tried to beat that one to death, but that, it's still being beaten here. It's only the people who have believed through grace across the river that are going to receive the instruction. But uh, that is where he's going. The only way you can know that you, have, that you truly believe is through understanding the grace of God. Uh, in this area, we know from the last chapter in Acts, uh, Corinth had believed there's a church here. Now, Apollos, I've told you, is named in the letter to Corinth, and he's commended by Paul. But I want you to look again at the boldness. Look at the dynamite again in the way he's presented. Remember earlier, he was fervent in spirit. He spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. A negative, right? 
But now, because of this discipleship, now the local church gets this. He powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. Do you hear the difference? I mean, contrast his message before and now. Now he's really uh, got a boldness about his gift. The difference is discipleship. God will use whatever knife he wants, but I think it's safe to say that his work of saving grace, his means of grace for the local church, the scriptures would show, is the sharpest knife that God wants to use. It's the knife he picks up continually in history and carves with. Are you tracking with me? Let me give you an illustration. And uh, you, you, Blake and Kelly, you'll appreciate this. You will too, Brittany. Uh, we were all on our elder retreat uh, last weekend. Seems like an eternity ago. But uh, the four of us try to get away. We've done it four times. We just want to pursue unity among our families and just be united. And we hope to invite other elders into this as our church grows. Well, there we were up in Arkansas and we're cooking a dinner. And uh, we made some Indian food together. And I'm just here to tell you, it was amazing. And we have plans to hope to cook it for the church. And so I'm setting us up for failure here. But, but listen, it, it was so good. However, there was a moment when we were in the kitchen and we we're preparing and having fun and just enjoying each other and playing, you know, crappy country music on the TV and, and just cutting. Well, Blake was tasked with cutting some onion. We harnessed somehow in the Walmart of Missouri, the most potent onions imaginable. Okay. These onions were full of so much fruit that an onion can give. They were bursting, ready uh, to release on the, the smelling world around them the, 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 the strong uh, onion. And if you know anything, and I didn't know this, but Blake, Blake told us that if you have a sharp knife and you cut an onion with a sharp knife, you don't end up like weeping uncontrollably because uh, it won't spread, you know, spill its nasty juices, right? Because you cut it and it's much less and it's much more doable. That's why all those people on the, you know, I guess on the Food Channel Network, they cut an onion and they're fine. We found in this Air, not Airbnb, this VRBO, we found the, the dullest knives that you could ever imagine, right? And here's poor Blake over there hacking at this onion. We got the job done. The onion was cut, right? But he's hacking at this onion while he's telling us about how, did you know that dull onions, you know, dull knives, when you cut onions, you know, it makes the onion weep and it, it causes all this stuff in the air. Well, while he's talking about this and he's finally getting this stuff open, he puts his sunglasses on, he's doing it. I am having, I can't tell you the reaction to the onion, four feet away from the onion, with my back to the onion, trying to cut chicken with sharp knife, with sharp scissors. We did have scissors. And I'm weeping. I'm literally weeping. Uh, uh, this onion is destroying the room and it's affecting me the most, okay? It was horrible. Um, and as we cut, you know, there was just this like pointedness about, you know, okay, we did this. Well, we finished and we all laughed. I mean, I bet there's a sermon illustration in that. Well, here it is, folks, all right? Here it is. Discipleship sharpens the knife of faith so that it cuts and it makes, in its cuts, personal application that eventually goes public. Okay? Let me explain. Just like when Blake was cutting that, that onion. You see, it had an effect, but it didn't have the effect it was supposed to have. The effect it was supposed to have was supposed to be cut concisely, affecting the person working on it, sure, going into a dish, and then me experiencing the full benefit of the put-together deliciousness of that Indian cuisine as the onion contributed to it. It wasn't supposed to blast everyone in the room with its truth, right? 
in a way that leaves them half blind. Are you tracking with me? True discipleship finds its context in the sharpness. And the local church is this sharp knife that God has set up. He's given it all it needs. And so Apollos being an example of that sharp knife, Apollos shows up to Corinth. Why? He's been sharpened. He's ready. And when it's time to cut, he is a contributor to the stew of God's glorious grace in Corinth. He is used in a more mightily way. Why? Because he was full of saving grace. He was sharpened by discipleship. He was ready to cut. And when he did, the, the results are tremendous. He powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing the scriptures. The scriptures say Christ was the Jesus, was the Messiah. Do you understand what I'm saying? If you go around calling discipleship what it's not, or if you fail in our church to commit in your church covenant to look at it and say, how can I really plug in and do what God has called me to do here? If you fail to sharpen that blade and yet you still try to accomplish the things of God, be careful. You're going to start spreading your onion juice all over the place and it's going to make people cry. It's going to hurt people. There's a process. We get impatient and we ignore the process. We do that personally. We do that publicly. We start going to people with logs hanging out of our face, hoping to find a speck in their eye and call it discipleship. Jesus calls it damned. It's a damnable way to live. Instead, first remove the plank from your own eye, be sharpened, and then go and remove from your brother. Right? I mean, think even at the beginnings of church discipline. How foolish to jump up and say to someone, you may not be a Christian because you believe this, when really that issue may be way down here and you really needed to back up to gain your brother and say, why don't we go sit down and have coffee? Why don't I hear you out? Did you really mean that this way, that brother? Do you get what I'm saying? All these things are, are in the knife block of discipleship in God's church. Now I'm admonishing you, but I want to remind you some of the most tangible ways to get rid of discouragement among the brethren are seen in these verses. Some of the most tangible ways. I mean, what's more tangible than we were in worship service together. I was a bit bothered by something I saw. And so I went and had dinner with this person. What's more tangible or practical than that? That's what this couple did. That's what this couple did. And then heaven, through the pen of Paul, wrote, wrote scripture about it. Do you realize that? God has raised you up if you are in Christ to be a knife ready to cut your fellow brother and sister in Christ for the edification of the body and to then eventually go out and wield that sword in the lost world, right? Which Corinth will do. Paul has hopes for them to be evangelists. It's a whole other sermon. The opportunities to be discipled and disciple others abound all the time. We must take them. We must take them. Conclusion, we cannot control what happens in our church's efforts with fruit-wise in doing the work. But God has shown us that we do have saving faith. We do have the means of grace, and we can bless the local church. So get busy. That's the conclusion. Get busy. He's also shown continually that he will use that to do the amazing things we want. <laughs> That's what he'll use. Mueller was blessed to see beyond his commitment uh, wonderful fruit. That's what he was talking about. 40 years later, reflecting. Can you imagine? 
40 years later, reflecting on, on what happened to him in discipleship. And he, he has testimony to say, I tell you, all the fruit you see, it comes first from this, <laughs> this understanding, this deeper walk. And if I wouldn't have had any of it, I still would have had that. That would have been enough. That's what he's trying to say. It was a blessing beyond reason, and reason was enough. He was a settled man in his faith. Apollos is a settled man in his faith because of faithful discipleship. Let me close with Mueller. Mueller wrote in a work titled Narrative, a wonderful conclusion to our time this morning. He wrote it, and I'm going to read it to you, and then I'm going to pray, and then we'll we'll, we'll take the Lord's Supper. This is what Mueller said. My dear Christian reader, will you not try this way? Will you not know for yourself the preciousness and the happiness of this way of casting all your cares and burdens and necessities upon God? This way is as open to you as to me. Everyone is invited and commanded to trust in the Lord, to trust in him with all his heart and to cast his burden upon him and to call upon him in the day of trouble. Will you not do this, my dear brethren in Christ? I long that you may do so. I desire that you may taste the sweetness of that state of heart in which while surrounded by difficulties and necessities, you can yet be at peace because you know that the living God, your Father in heaven, cares for you. Let's pray. God, I pray you'd help us to recover such a faith among us. We answer the question, what is discipleship, Lord? Your text has shown us that it is saving faith through the means of grace in the local church, sharpening us to glorify you. I pray, God, you'll help us to see the song we sing next, that you are our salvation, to see you in the elements of our uh, time where we come together and by faith eat and drink together, the Lord's Supper. God, I pray if there be anybody here that after the first point was struck, God, may you let it be a lightning rod to them through us that they need to repent and trust Jesus for the, for the first time as their Lord and Savior. And for those who have believed God, help us to continue believing that, but then also knowing that you have many means of grace and they start right here in this room. You're not done with us, Lord, and you want to use this, God, and so help us to see that we have an opportunity, just like our third point concluded, God, to go forth and to bless the church. Help us to do that all in our own way, in our own right. We need your We need your strength to do it. We ask for it again in Jesus' name. Amen.